Well, I was at a uh, children's party this afternoon uh, for um, uh, a uh, five-year-old, and the hostess said to me, so uh, what are you doing this evening? I started preaching at church. She said, well, what's the topic tonight? I said, uh, it's the topic of the importance of sex within marriage. I don't think she was expecting me to say that, but that is what we're looking at this evening. Sexual intercourse began in 1963, somewhere between the Chatterley Band and the Beatles' first LP. So said the uh, poet, Philip Larkin. And uh, my basic knowledge of biology suggests to me that that can't quite be right. But there is a truth in the fact that the 1960s sort of revolution in sexual attitudes within this country. The, The free love generation adopted the psychiatrist Sigmund Freud ideas that sexual oppression was a bad thing. It was harmful not to have sex when you wanted, with whom you wanted, how you wanted. At the arrival of the pill and the increasing moral neutrality of abortion actually added to this state of freedom. It led to a a radical change in sexual habits. So in 1965, 33% of boys and 17% of girls had had sex by the time they were 18. By 1977, it was 69% of boys and 56% of girls. That figure actually has continued to rise up until, interestingly, the the present generation where the combination of the internet and the smartphone has led to a decrease in adolescent sexual activity, but as I said last week, an increase into adolescent viewing of porn and even violent pornography. In 1994, only 1% of men and 4% of women in this country were virgins on the day they got married. And they will be regarded as thoroughly strange and abnormal. As one university safe sex leaflet puts it with this memorable line, enough of this moralizing. Sleep with whoever you can, whenever you can, but do it carefully. And yet, there's never been a generation that has been more dissatisfied with their relationships. Divorce rates are high. Loneliness in our society is absolutely rampant. People are isolated, even those who are sexually active. One contemporary commentator has put it like this. Most of my contemporaries no longer make love. They shag, bonk, and screw quickly, anonymously, lovelessly. The generation more pitifully searching for intimacy than any other in history has taken the central sacrament of interpersonal intimacy and killed it dead. We've never been more sexually active, yet we've never been less happy with our relationships. And last week we started looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthians and saw him teach about the issue of fleeing sexual immorality. And I had a chat with one of our young people on the way out and they said to me, look, I was at a party last week and I was uh, chatting to a girl and she was telling me how she was trying to get to 50 sexual partners. She said, I've reached 20. And, And they said to her, well, why are you trying to get to 50 sexual partners? She said, well, I've reached 20 and I've still got this emptiness inside. And I'm hoping by the time I get to 50, the emptiness will have gone away. This isn't something that's out there in the world. This is something that we are interacting with all the time. As we saw last week, this isn't a new thing. Because Corinth in the first century was a a very sexualized culture. Uh, Paul, the apostle, had been there for 18 months And the city that he was preaching in was one that had the worship of Aphrodite through temple prostitution right at the heartbeat of their society. Sex sold in Corinth. 
It made Soho look like a center for the morally upstanding, the city of Corinth. And as Paul preached the good news of Jesus, a church had come into being. And we saw last week that Paul had written a number of letters to that church. And 1 Corinthians is the first letter of his that we have recorded in our Bibles. And this week we're we're moving to a new section in 1 Corinthians, still referring to sex. We saw last week that in chapter 5 he'd addressed in the church the issue of someone who seemed to be sleeping with their stepmother-in-law. And the church wasn't doing anything about it. He said, you've got to address that issue. Then we saw last week at the end of chapter 6, he was addressing the issue of people who are saying, look, it doesn't matter what I do with my body, you know, it's only a body, it's just natural, I'm just doing what's natural. And Paul said, no, the, the Bible says your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to God, he's bought it by the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus, and poured his spirit into it, so you belong to him now, so what you do with your body matters. He said, flee sexual immorality. And this week, it looks like in Paul's letter, he's beginning to answer some questions they've sent in to him, not by text, but by letter. And the questions are about sex and marriage. Because if last week the issue was, well, it doesn't matter what I do with my body because, you know, God doesn't care as long as I'm spiritual and worship him, this week it looks like there's another wrong idea in Corinth. It's the idea that, well, what I do with my body matters so much that I need to just avoid anything dirty or odd like sex. So the first heading we've got tonight is this. No sex, please. We're Christians. That's effectively what the Corinthians were saying. Look at 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The verse literally says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Paul's quoting from their letter, it appears. Now, the idea of punishing your body, denying your body things, is an idea associated with asceticism. It's why Muslims abstain from sex during Ramadan, or some Christians abstain from sex during Lent. It's the idea of, if something feels so good, then it must be more spiritual not to do it for a while. And it's true to say that in the history of the church, Christians have had some strange teaching on this sort of idea. So Eve of Chartres cancelled the divine during the Middle Ages to abstain from sexual intercourse on Thursday in remembrance of Christ's rapture, on Fridays in remembrance of Christ's crucifixion, on Saturdays in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary, on Sundays in remembrance of Christ's resurrection, on Mondays out of respect for the departed souls, which presumably means the devout were very glad to have something to look forward to in the middle of the week. That sort of idea of abstinence from sex is, in fact, ridiculous, according to the Scriptures. The very first command in the Bible has to do with sex. God creates the first man and woman, and then Genesis 1.28, he says this to them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, Adam, Eve, go and have lots of sex and make lots of babies. And the Bible's very clear, as we saw last week, that sex is a beautiful thing given us by God for a particular context. Lifelong marriage between a man and a woman. And in one way, the Corinthians are absolutely right with their quote. You see, if you're considering sex outside of that marriage context, then it's very good for a man not to touch a woman. 
Well, rightly, last week, there were a good set of questions. One of the questions that came back is, Daffy, are you really serious about your definition of sexual immorality? Because last week, I defined sexual immorality as being anything that turns you on that you do with someone who is not your husband or wife. Anything that causes you to be sexually turned on that you do with someone that's not your husband or wife. And some people rightly would think, that's just so over the top. I mean, that's not just countercultural, that's crazy. But I guess I want to turn around and ask people, why do you want to touch a woman who's not your husband or wife? Why do you touch a woman or a man who's not your husband or wife? You know, some people say, well, it's because of compatibility. We, we need to, to have an intimate relationship so we can be compatible. So you're saying you've got to, like, test lip compatibility or test whether your bodies fit together to cuddle? Sure, surely, if I'm touching someone sexually who's not my husband or wife, even before I'm married to them, that, that's more about me than them. That's more about my gratification than theirs. That's more about what I can get out of it than what I give to them. And actually, Paul says sex isn't primarily about self-gratification. No, actually, sex isn't about taking at all. Sex is about what you give. But because the main thing Paul's teaching here is that the Corinthians are wrong to say it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Because Paul says if you're married, that's absolutely the opposite of what you should be doing. If you're married, you should be having lots of sex. Because here's the, here's the second thing we see. It's more sex, please. We're married. Look at verse 2. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Literally, but because of sexual immoralities, let every husband go on having his own wife and every wife go on having her own husband. I hope that I don't have to tell you why that word own is in there. Adultery wrecks not just marriages, it wrecks lives. But actually, that's not Paul's primary point here. His primary point is, is, a, is a positive one. If you're married, keep on having sex with each other. Don't be drawn in to the sexual immorality of the world. Now, this verse is sometimes taken to mean that people should get married if, if they can't avoid sexual temptation. But, but that's not what Paul's saying here. He's not saying that you should take a wife or, or take a husband. That, that's not the word that he uses. The word he uses is to go on having your wife or go on having your husband. It's a word that relates to an ongoing sexual relationship within marriage. And that sexual relationship is an obligation. Because look at what he says in verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. That uh, phrase, marital duty, used to be translated conjugal rights, which sounds like helping someone out with their French verbs. But, but it's not. It's the idea of owing somebody something. The husband should give his wife what he owes her, and the wife should give her husband what she owes him. And the next verse tells us what their debt to one another is. Look at verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. 
See, marriage is never about me. It's never about, I want to be fulfilled. I want to have sex. I don't want to have sex. I want to watch the rugby first. I feel incomplete. I need somebody. Now, marriage is always about self-giving. That's because Christian marriage is a picture of Jesus' relationship with his people, the church. And Jesus is the great giver to us. He gives himself even unto death on a cross for his people. And as people created in the image of God, we are created to find greatest contentment, not in taking for ourselves, but in giving to others. You see, God, the Holy Trinity, who's existed in all eternity, is the ultimately happy person. I can tell you now, God is totally content all of the time. And he is in a constant relationship of self-giving. The Father gives to the Son. The Son longs to give glory to the Father. The Spirit longs to bring people into relationship with both of them, constantly giving in love, Father, Son, and Spirit. And therefore, we're created to find contentment in self-giving. The great lie of the fall at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3 is you'll be much happier if you take for yourself. Just think about yourself. It's all about you. And that lie creeps into marriage. It's all about you. You feeling good. You thinking about yourself. That's what will make you happy. Are you getting what you deserve, what you want? The Bible says no. It's about giving. Now, if you're not a Christian here this evening, you might think this is insane. I mean, one, this guy clearly was born circa 1932 and hasn't really changed his culture since the 1950s. And two, he's telling me about giving. This this is high risk. And yes, it is high risk. But that is what is at the heart of love, my friends. Love is not about a feeling that is generated by your hormones or by your brain. Love is about an attitude of giving yourself to another because that is what God's love for us is. He has given himself to us. And that self-giving goes for our bodies as well. There's a duty of sexual self-giving, husband to wife and wife to husband. Now, if, uh, if you're not married, you might be thinking, well, <laughs> that's not going to be hard, is it? I mean, I can hardly keep my hands off her now. So once it's game on, of course, it's going to be passionate lovemaking all the time. I mean, that's the way it's going to be. Ah, oh, brother. <laughs> you underestimate the power of sin. See, the heart of sin is disobedience to our loving Heavenly Father. It affects every area of our lives, contra Hollywood. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that when God says that we shouldn't have sex, we suddenly want lots of of it. And when God says, no, really, you should have sex, we suddenly want rather less of it. And we don't want it at the same time. And we don't want it in the same amount. It shouldn't surprise us that where God commands an active sexual life within marriage, actually we find it very, very hard. Because our hearts are still wired to deny what he says as being good. And I said last week, the primary problem that I've come across as I've counseled Christians in marriage over something like 20 years of ministry is dysfunctional sexual relationship, often based on a a naivety that it, it should come easily because it felt like it should before we got married. You see, Paul only gives one activity that should stop a husband and wife coming together to have sex. Did you see that activity in verse 5? Here it is. Do not deprive each other 
except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Now, there's an excuse you haven't heard often, isn't there? (laughs) Not tonight, darling, I'm praying. For the whole of China by name. I'm going to stop praying in about three months' time. In fact, you see, it's not even that you cannot have sex for prayer. He says it's by mutual consent. You've got to both agree on the prayer meeting. And it's for a limited time only. And you see why at the end of verse 5? Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, if you spend too long as a couple without a healthy sexual relationship, the devil will use the opportunity to encourage you to look and see what else is on offer out there. But because our emotional intimacy and our physical intimacy are bound together. You cannot have an emotionally intimate marriage without a physically intimate marriage. And you cannot have a physically intimate marriage without an emotionally intimate marriage. You can't separate them in God's design for marriage. And even skipping sex, Paul says in verse 6, is a is concession, not, not a command. A good sex life in marriage is actually God, part of God's vaccination against committing adultery. Now, now sadly, it's not, it's not a foolproof vaccination, and there are some fools out there. But marital sexual relations are at the heart of marriage. Now, if you're married here, the, the application is not too difficult to work out, is it? You have a responsibility to fulfill your partner's sexual desires, to give yourself to them. And gents, this is, this is not an excuse to think you can like go and watch Match of the Day, play on your computer for hours, and then nip upstairs to bed, your wife having been semi-conscious for about an hour and a half, and say, wake up, love, the pastor says we've got to have sex. <laughs> okay, that's not the way it works. That is not giving, that is taking. Now, we need to recognize, both as men and women, that giving in marriage sexually is about understanding one another. You'll know that some people say that male sexual harassment is more like a satsuma, easy to peel and over rather quickly. And female sexual harassment is more like a fruit salad. Takes a little longer to prepare, but, but lasts longer in the end. And if our sexual relationship is to be about sexually giving ourselves to one another, we need to think, what is the most pleasurable thing for the other person? What do they require to be sexually satisfied in this relationship? We need to talk about it. We need to be willing to to cross some of those really awkward moments, even within a relationship we've had for many years, and talk to one another about that most intimate thing that God has given us. And there are some good Christian books. There's quite an old book called Intended for Pleasure, and a newer book called One Flesh that address some of the issues of sex within marriage and the difficulties people face at having satisfying sexual relationships within marriage. Now, there will be medical reasons why sex is painful for some people within marriage, why they will need special help and maybe special counseling. And so I say say this very cautiously, that if you're here and, and you're married, and at the moment you don't have a healthy sexual relationship, please do get help. But please do either see your GP or see a trusted Christian friend so that you can talk about whether your, your relationship is healthy or not. And what do I mean by healthy relationship? Well, this is not a, this is not a rule. This is just a little guideline to, to try and give you something to think about whether your relationship's healthy or not. I guess if you're married and you're struggling to have sex, say, 
um, once a week, if you're not having sex once a week within marriage, it might be a good thing to, to just begin to ask people why that's the case, to, to think about, are we having enough sex within our marriage? The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt have sex once a week. But it's just trying to put something out there to, to help you think, what is, what is normal? And what about people who are single here? Well, if you're someone who's considering marriage, then you need to ask yourself, am I ready to give myself to somebody else wholly like this, to give myself physically to somebody else? More often than not, when we're single, we consider our own desires first. But 1 Corinthians says, are you ready to give your body to someone else? And that can be a very frightening thing, I think. I think the nature of sex means it's often a more frightening thing for women than for men to think about giving your body in vulnerability to someone else. Also recognize that marriage is sexual. And therefore don't spend ages trying to work out if this is the right person and the right time to get married. Long-term dating relationships almost inevitably lead to sexual sin. Why? Because God has given you your sexual desire. And once you're in an emotionally exclusive, intimate, boy-girl relationship, funnily enough, your body starts screaming, this is the place I'm supposed to have sex. So only start a going-out relationship if you're in a place in life where you're ready to commit to a marriage relationship. If you're not ready to say, okay, if this is the right person, I'll get married tomorrow, don't start going out with them. Because all you're doing is taking for yourself rather than giving to them, which is what marriage is about. I think that God has given sexual desire for that intimate, exclusive relationship, and therefore we need to be very careful the context we have intimate, exclusive relationships within. And if we're grandparents or parents or respected senior saints here, well, we need to be able to separate what the Bible teaches on sex and marriage from our cultural norms. There is nothing in the Bible about having to own a house before you can get married. There's nothing in the Bible about having to finish university or college before you can get married. There's nothing in the Bible about having a decent job before you can get married. So we mustn't make those things mandatory as though the Bible teaches them. Especially if a young couple are in an exclusive, intimate, long-term relationship and they want to get married and that is the right place for them to then enjoy their sexual relationship, we mustn't put barriers in the way of that happening. You see, we can put cultural barriers in the way that might actually lead to them committing sexual sin because we've told them they can't get married because of a whole load of things that have nothing to do with the Bible and everything to do with the way we feel culturally. So so what is God's will for your life? I mean, are you supposed to be married or single? That's the third thing we see in this passage, to be married or not to be married. What is my gift? Because look what Paul says in in verse 7. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Verse 7 is actually linked to verse 6 by the word for. If you look back at verse 6, Paul says, I say this as a concession, not as a command, for I wish that all of you were as I am. And the principle in verse 6 was the principle of freedom. You're free to suspend sex for prayer. It's not a command if you want to. And you're free not to suspend sex to pray. 
And that's actually the principle that Paul's carrying on to verse 7. Paul's saying, look, I wish all people were free as I am. Free on the issue of marriage and singleness. Free to put serving the Lord Jesus Christ first. Because he says it's good to be single. Your state is a gift from God. And it's good to be married. Your state is a gift from God. One has this gift. Another has that gift, says the Apostle Paul. Aha, you think, ah, well, clearly I haven't got the gift of singleness because I'm desperate to be married. But but that's not Paul's point. He's actually saying the state you find yourself in today is a gift from God, and I long you'd be free to serve Christ in the state that you find yourself. He he uses that principle to affirm one group. Have a look at verse 8. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say... It is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. If you've got enough power in your specs, you'll see there's a little footnote, an alternative translation there. Now to the widowers and to the widows. That's probably a better translation. So Paul is saying to widowers and widows, those who've been bereaved, they would have been under huge pressure to get remarried as soon as possible. And he's saying to them, look, don't resent your state. It's actually a good thing for you at the moment to be single. It's a gift from God. See, God's plans for us are perfect. God hasn't made a mistake if you're single, and God hasn't made a mistake if you're married, as though his sovereignty over your life has just failed in this particular area. Now, that might be terribly hard for you to understand this evening, especially if you're in a difficult marriage or in the midst of a relationship that feels like it's breaking. It might be terribly hard to understand if, if you've experienced divorce and all the pain associated with that. And I don't want for a moment to say to you, God desired the pain that you have been through for you. However, the promise of the Bible is God does use everything in our lives for our good to bring us to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. You, I, probably won't see how that works within the pain you're going through or have been through. But that is God's promise to you still. And we have to be careful of the danger that we begin to think that when things, say, get tough in marriage, we begin to think, well, clearly this marriage wasn't God's plan for me. But perhaps I was wrong. Perhaps, perhaps I should have stayed single. But actually, the Bible says, no, if you're married, that is God's plan for you. And as Christians, we must fight to stay married. And next week, we're going to look at divorce and some of Paul's teaching about divorce and marriage. It is worth noting, I think, that in the 1960s, divorce was almost unheard of amongst Christians. And I don't think that means that people in the 1960s have got marriage better than we have today. I just think within Christian culture at that time, there was a stronger commitment to stick in marriage however hard it was. I'm not saying that divorce isn't at times the right thing to do. I'm just saying that we need in our culture to fight as hard as possible to stay married. Similarly, if you're you're single now, that is a gift from God. So, So get on and use that situation to serve him. I don't spend your time being consumed with frustration that Mr. or Mrs. Wright hasn't come along yet. Don't spend your time hanging out just with people who might be Mr. or Mrs. Wright in the hope that they or you will begin to like each other more. No, there is actually only one person 
who will be faithful to you all of your life. There is only one person who will turn your worse to better, who will take your sickness and make it health, who will turn your poverty to riches, who will be with you through everything, and who in the end you'll be united to in death forever. And that's the person that God has in mind for you to find satisfaction for your desperate desire to be loved. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one, if you're single, that you need to look to above all other people. He is the one in whom you will find the satisfaction that you crave. And that means as a church we need to affirm singleness. It is not helpful if we especially ask young women, because we do it to young women more than young men, when are you going to get married? Or if when their best friend gets engaged, we try and comfort them with the words, I'm sure God's got someone from you soon, which he might not have. And anyway, that's a dreadful thing to say to them because that is not who they are in Christ. It just makes them feel more discontent. No, we want to point people to Jesus. Nor is it helpful if we treat the single person like a special social case. So we either only have them around when we need some free babysitting, or we only invite them around in pairs, or even worse, we invite them around in pairs who we think will work as a couple. Don't do that. Their singleness is a gift from God. They are not marrieds in waiting. They're people with the gift of singleness. That's a huge privilege. And in a couple of weeks' time, as we finish 1 Corinthians 7, we'll see why the Apostle Paul says it's a huge privilege to be single. And we all need to recognize that whatever relationship we're in at the moment is a gift from God, and therefore to use it for his service. So it's a great thing for us to ask from time to time, maybe more regularly than we do, how am I using my marriage? How are we using our marriage as something that God has given us for his service. Now, that's why God put Eve in the garden with Adam, that they might serve the Lord together. And to ask, how am I now using my state of singleness, which is a gift from God, for his service? Because that is why you're single today. Well, lastly, back to widows and widows, and back to sex. Because here's our last heading. It's marriage, please, we're having sex. Have a look back to verse 8 with me. Now to the unmarried and the widows, or to the widowers and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. So we've already seen the Apostle Paul is affirming those who've lost their spouse. It's not a bad thing to be single. Now that doesn't mean that that getting remarried is not a good thing, but, but as with single people, those who are widows and widowers should look not, first of all, to the arms of another man or woman for comfort, but should look to the church and to the Lord Jesus Christ for comfort. It's amongst the church, other Christians, that we should find the most tangible experience of the love of God in the Lord Jesus. And in heaven, well, Jesus himself teaches in Matthew 20 that there will be no marriage. We will only be in relationship with him and relationship with all other Christians in equal intimacy. That there'll be no marriage in heaven. Therefore, marriage is not the high point of human relationship. Relationship with Christ and with our brothers and sisters is the high point of human relationship. It's why, by the way, if you haven't already read it, the book, The Plausibility Problem, is a fantastic book because it talks about how, as church, we need to do community 
better. It's why I want us to have hospitality right up there as a priority for us as a church, that we're having into our homes people who we're not related to and who we don't know so that they experience the love of God and the Lord Jesus Christ through us. It is commanded in the Bible hospitality. We are to be the community where people find the tangible experience of the love they're craving in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is one group of people Paul thinks should definitely get married. Do you see them in verse 9? But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. <laughs> you think, uh, at last, F, I'm a hot-blooded male, and I can't control myself. I'm feeling particularly horny. This verse tells me I need to get married. I burn with passion daily. Well, actually, our translation hasn't quite helped us here very well because the words with passion aren't in the original text. It simply says at the end of verse 9, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn. And the only other time Paul uses that word to burn, it's about burning with shame. It's about feeling shame because of your sin. And so Paul isn't saying get married if, if, if you're burning with sexual desire because that would mean singleness was basically only for impotent people. And that is not the case. If you are medically impotent, it's okay, you can be single. But if you are hormonally normal, you should get married. That's not what he's saying. No, he's saying the people who should marry are not those who are struggling with lust, which probably is everyone, but it's those who've gone past the struggle and are now in an active sexual relationship. That They've stopped struggling. It might, again, be primarily to, to the widow and to the widower. Maybe they've come together and, and they feel it's too soon since their spouse has died to get married and they're a bit embarrassed about it. And Paul's saying, no, you're behaving like a married couple. Get married. Don't burn with shame. Solve the problem of your sin by putting your sex within the right context. So if you're not married here, and you are in an active sexual relationship. And I've actually uh, said this to uh, young men in the past. The question might be not stop it, but get married. And if you're not willing to get married, then stop it. That's what Paul is saying. Get married. Not when you're 21. Not when you've got enough money, but now. But only get married if they're a Christian. Uh, we're going to deal with that issue as well by the time we get to the end of 1 Corinthians 7. It's very counter our culture, isn't the Bible? It's much, much more positive about sex than we think it would be, but in the right context. It's much, much more positive about singleness than I have to say a lot of churches are a lot of the time. And it's much, much more realistic about the way that we're created, the way sin has affected us, and the way we failed. Because let me say again as I finish, we gather here this evening as people who are all failures before God. People who are very glad that our sexual behavior, our sexual thoughts over our lifetime is not on all display for all of us to see. In fact, there's not one of us sitting here tonight who if you took our thought life and displayed it on the screens behind me, would be content ever to return to be a member of Chessington Evangelical Church. And that's why it's vital we remember chapter 6 and verse 11. 
Let's finish there again. Because chapter 6 and verse 11 is what Paul says has happened to those who trust in Jesus. He lists a whole set of different things, things that exclude you from relationship with God, things that we're all guilty of in one way or another. And then he says this in 6.11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. If you, when you think of your sexual relationships and sin, you feel dirty, the Bible says you've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus once and for all. If you, when you think of the way that you failed in this area, feel I don't belong amongst these people. (laughs) They're obviously living a totally different life to me. No, the Bible says you're sanctified. God has set you apart and made you his precious child by giving his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you feel guilty tonight because you know you've disobeyed the Lord in this area, The Bible says you're justified. God declares you innocent because his perfect son died in your place. So whatever your sin, today even, if you trust in the Lord Jesus, you are clean. You are part of his people. You are innocent before him because of what he has done for you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we marvel that you love us with an utter self-giving love. You gave the most precious thing that you have, your one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we marvel that you love us with a self-giving love. You gave up your life for us upon the cross. And Holy Spirit of God, we marvel that now you give us an experience of that love as you are poured into our hearts. Please, as married people, as single people, as people who've been through the pain of divorce, as people who have struggled for years on our own, in whatever state we find ourselves, please, our Father, would our love for one another be more like your love for us. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen.